The following is a presentation of the Boston Podcast Network. Podcasting is a great way for professionals to tell their story. Find out how you can get started at pod617.com. Welcome to the Ask Harry podcast. This is Harry Margolis, and this is the podcast where we interview experts on all aspects of estate planning. On this episode of Ask Harry, Harry continues his conversation with attorney Joseph Imbriani of the law firm of Taylor, Ganson and Perrin on the subject of year-end tax planning. It's good to have you back again, Joe. When we were talking after the last podcast we did, we talked about one of the problems that we see a lot, that uh, these lawyers uh, draw up these beautiful documents and that they for estate planning, and uh, then they don't always work because they're not implemented. So what, what is that all about? It is a huge problem. And before I get into it, I'll just explain a case that I had probably about four years ago where very wealthy couple, husband passes away. Uh, they had an estate plan drafted up by one of the best Boston law firms at the cost of about $25,000. Oh, I'm going to raise my rates. <laughs> <laughs> However... None of the assets were changed. None of the ownership of the assets were changed into trust. None of the beneficiary designations were revised so that, A, the plan didn't operate as efficiently as it should have. B, it didn't operate as effectively. And we'll get into efficiency and effectiveness in just a second. But I guess we have to start by understanding what does it mean to implement your estate plan? So you've gone through all the time and expense to create this wonderful estate plan with all these exceptionally long documents, most of which you hopefully understand. It probably has wills and trusts. But what you need to do is you need to change the ownership of various assets and also review beneficiary designations, particularly of retirement plans and life insurance. And that is what the implementation process is. So, so why do you have to do that? Well, estate planning is all about effectiveness and efficiency. First and foremost, your estate plan should benefit those you choose, thus making it effective. Second, it should do so in the most efficient manner possible. So failing to implement even a well-drafted estate plan can result in delays and substantial additional costs. So... Um and, to, and so to implement it, you need to change the ownership of assets? Yes. In, in what way? Well, we have to first take a look at what types of assets you may own. So let's go through a simple example. One is a securities account. Often a trust will address how you want that property to be dealt with. But if you don't transfer the property to the trust prior to your death, it will have to go through the probate process to get into your trust. So the probate process, which... Yeah, so, uh, yeah. What, is, what is that? Well, let's, let's jump off on a little tangent here and okay. talk about that. The probate process is the process of changing ownership of an item of property from the name of the deceased individual to that person or entity set forth in that decedent's will. Sounds simple, but it's very often not, not the case. Let me give you a quick example. John is married to Mary. John has a will leaving all his property to a trust for Mary and has a single securities account in his name. At John's death, 
Mary will not have access to the funds in the account until a probate process is completed. John's will appointing Mary as the personal representative of his estate will have to be presented to the probate court, typically by a lawyer. The court will require Mary to perform certain tasks, including notifying all family members and publishing her desire to become the personal representative. These steps are typically also completed by an attorney. After these steps have been completed, the probate court will get around to appointing Mary as the personal representative. Mary can then take that appointment to the custodian of the securities account and transfer those into an account in the name of John's estate. But Mary, as the personal representative of John's estate, can only access the funds for estate expenses, not for her personally. To gain access to the funds for personal purposes, Mary, again as personal representative, would have to transfer the property to John's trust, which is for her benefit. So that sounds pretty cumbersome. So how long does it take and what does it cost? It can take months and sometimes years. And because the courts are so backed up, uh, it can take seemingly forever. Additionally, it typically requires the assistance of an attorney. And whenever you hear attorneys in court in the same sentence, think dollar signs. That's where your cost comes in. So how, how can you avoid all that? The process can be avoided in a number of ways because it's so t- cumbersome and time-consuming. People try to do that. There are a lot of techniques that we regularly use. One of the simplest techniques is to transfer property prior to one's passing. And in our case, had John simply changed the ownership of the securities account during his lifetime to his trust, he would still have had complete control over the account during his life, and Mary would have had immediate access to the funds in the account upon John's passing for Mary's personal expenses. So wouldn't that also be true if everything was just in joint names between Mary and John? Yes, it would. Joint ownership would allow the property to go immediately to Mary. However, and this is a little bit of a deeper conversation, there are estate tax inefficiencies, particularly if they're residents of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, with using that technique. Another similar technique to that is, well, I'll just put the kids' names on the accounts. Mm -hmm. That is often used, but I don't like to suggest that it be used because if John and Mary were to put their child's name on their account, the assets in the account would be subject to the liabilities of the child. Mm-hmm. And we've also, we've, we've in our practice, we've often seen cases with uh, when uh, parents have put kids' names on the accounts where it's uneven. They, they might have four kids, but they don't have five names on the accounts. They have uh, Johnny on on one and, and uh, Bill on the other and Jennifer on a third and, and uh, Mary on the, on the last one and then they're, not, then they're not equal and that creates a lot of problems. And that means that the plan is not effective. You haven't benefited those that you choose to benefit in the, the correct proportions. And then in going back to the issue of just putting your spouse on the account, um, if if your estate is over a million dollars, which happens to a lot of people in Massachusetts if they own a house, um, then 
you're probably creating an estate tax that might be avoided if you use a trust. Is that right? Avoided or minimized yeah. by the use of a trust. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, so, um, so when people come to you and they they have an estate plan, but they haven't changed ownership of properties in, into trust in some cases, what do you do? Well, in the case of John and Mary, when they come into the office to execute all of their estate planning documents, as part of the implementation process, we would have the paperwork to open a new account in the name of John's Trust and a document to transfer all of the assets in the existing account to the new account. So that's so that implementation occurs right when they're signing their documents in the first place. Exactly, and we'll get into the reasoning in just a bit, but you quite honestly can't trust clients to do what you tell them to do. <laughs> so if you do it for them, it tends to get done properly. So I think uh, what a lot of lawyers do, unfortunately, I think is uh, send the documents that have been signed with a letter saying, here's what you're supposed to do, and then they move on to the next client. Exactly, invariably clients don't follow through. Yeah. And so um, do you charge extra for helping uh, with this process of changing ownership? Yes, but we've done it so many times. I've been practicing for 26 years that we've seen just about every type of asset that needs to be changed. So it's easy for us to work that little bit of additional time into their estate plan so that we know it gets implemented properly. Mm -hmm. That's that's important. So um, now, do you transfer absolutely everything into trust when you do this? No, there are certain assets that I almost never transfer into trust, uh, though I've seen attorneys do it, such as tangible personal property. To change the ownership of a vehicle into a trust name or to change the furnishings and fixtures of your home into a trust name, I've seen that done by deed of gift, but I typically don't do that. And we'll spin back to the probate process in, in a moment, um, and I'll explain how we limit our probate exposure, but we still need to go through the probate process, and there are good reasons for doing so. One is when we have bank accounts. Typically, what we'll do with bank accounts is we'll have the majority of the funds transferred to a client's trust, but not all of them. Because from a practical perspective, it's easier to operate a checking account in your own personal name than one in the name of your trust. Moreover, if you have income directly deposited into your checking account or make electronic payments from the account, it's easier to have the account in your own name. So to allow the client to avoid having to change over all those procedures for deposits and withdrawals, we typically will leave some amount in a checking account, whether it's an individual name or joint names, but with a relatively modest balance. So that small balance will have to go through the probate process. But if we have just a small amount of assets going through the probate process, again, getting back to the tangible personal property that I mentioned, there's an easier streamlined process for smaller estates. And you might even be able to avoid probate if if you husband and wife they'll have joint names on the account I would assume, and if it's a, a single person if they have kids if they name say one child they trust the one who has the power of attorney for instance as a joint holder of the account then that child can help manage things for them, 
and it won't go through probate, and they'll have access to the funds to pay for things uh, after death, whether it's a funeral cost or exactly. you know, medical so, bills or, most important, their lawyer. <laughs> you have to get paid up front, Ari. you got to think important. ahead. <laughs> so, um, so, so that may or may not go through the probate process, but you said with tangible items, you still may want to go through the probate process. Right. There are some protection afforded by having documents recorded uh, in a probate court so that everybody is put on notice that things were done in accordance with your wishes. So there is a good side to the probate process, but it's kind of like the old big dig. You want to avoid it as much as possible. Yeah. And um, so then what, what about real estate? So does, does that get transferred into trust as well? Very often we will do that. There are some situations where we will not. I will give you an example of the latter first. Husband and wife own their own home as tenants by the entirety in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. Tenants by the entirety is essentially joint ownership, but between spouses. So if they own it that way, there are certain protections afforded under Massachusetts law so that if husband, for example, were to get sued, there would be some protection for the wife residing there. Now, if something happens to husband and then wife owns it individually, it's very likely that we would transfer that asset into her trust at that point. Mm -hmm. Transferring real estate requires a deed from the individual owner to the trust name and also the recording of a trustee certificate. And, of course, the payment of a modest recording fee. So in cases where we transfer real estate, we will, again, have these documents, the deed, the trustee certificate, the check, and the letter to the registry, all in their document execution package so that we know that it gets done correctly and promptly. And uh, so you talked about some really creditor protection uh, um, offered by tenants by the entirety of that kind of ownership. But there's also a homestead exemption. Right. And we will often do a homestead declaration for clients, mm -hmm. and you are permitted to do that even if the property is transferred into trust. And that is essentially the cheapest uh, insurance policy that you could ever get because you are protected to a certain amount of equity in your home, and it's dependent on your age. And uh, how much is it? I don't recall I mean, specific numbers. It's I know or six hundred thousand, and it's a sliding scale based on the age of the owners. Yeah, I think what happens after sixty-two is you can stack them. So, so even if you have two husband and wife or both owners, if they're under sixty-two, you just get one one um, exemption, and if they're over sixty-two, you get uh, both. So you can add that, them together. That sounds accurate. Yeah. So. Um, so that's, that's very good. Is there any, any other kinds of assets you might transfer into trust? Real estate, securities accounts, and bank accounts are very common. Other assets that we transfer really depend upon the client's specific situation. Uh, many sophisticated plans have life insurance policies in place that need to be transferred. In such cases, we will have the transfer documentation to transfer the life insurance policy from the individual's name into a trust name. We will have new beneficiary designation forms, and we'll even consider and discuss with the client 
the gift tax implications of such a transfer. So uh, with life insurance, you have beneficiaries, and that's also true of retirement plans. Is it necessary to actually transfer the asset or just uh, um, make the trust the beneficiary under, under the... Well, with life insurance, you often want to transfer the asset. Life insurance is peculiar. Suppose, Harry, that you have a million-dollar life insurance policy on yourself. I guarantee you, you will never see the million dollars. Right. So why have that million dollars included in your estate for estate tax purposes at a million-dollar value when the policy may only be worth Mm $10,000? If you transfer the policy and live three years, then the proceeds, the million dollars, are out of your estate and you've only made a gift of Mm $10,000. So that's why we'll often transfer the ownership of life insurance. Conversely, you would never transfer the ownership of a retirement plan. If you were to transfer the ownership of your IRA, for example, into trust, it would be considered an immediate distribution of all assets in the IRA, which would be fully taxable to you. So you can never transfer your own IRA into a trust. Without, I would without, never, without, I would never advise you to right. do that. Right. Exceptionally costly. But you could make uh, the trust the beneficiary of the IRA. Absolutely. And that's one of the things that we regularly review for clients is what are the current beneficiary designations and are those the most appropriate beneficiary designations as we implement your estate plan? And often it will suggest to us that naming a trust, perhaps as a secondary beneficiary, is beneficial. Though a little tangential, I'll mention that if you have a husband and wife, we often will still have the spouse named as the primary because, and this is a bit of overlap between estate taxation and income taxation, because the spouse, surviving spouse, can roll that retirement plan over into his or her IRA and enable them to continue to defer the income taxation. However, it's less efficient from an estate tax standpoint, so we have the secondary beneficiary be a trust. And then this may be, yeah, as you're saying, maybe getting a little complicated beyond our discussion, but then the surviving spouse can actually file what's called a disclaimer to have a portion or all of the IRA go into the trust, but it's up to the surviving spouse, what to do at that point. Right. And this is another tangent that some some attorneys use disclaimers as a regular part of their planning. But in my experience, a surviving spouse is in no position within nine months of the passing of his or her spouse to make a decision that, no, I never want to have these assets and never want to enjoy these assets. Mm -hmm. So I very rarely will rely upon a surviving spouse to disclaim an asset, even if it is likely in their long-term best interest. Mm -hmm. So depending on who they disclaim it to, they still may have access to it, so it's a little more limited. If it's, Certainly. If it's, if, it's, if it's disclaimed to a trust, it's for their benefit. If it's disclaimed to their kids, then it's their kid's property. Right. And uh, they don't have it anymore. Right. Exactly. So um, a lot of – life seems to um, always get more complicated all the time. So when we, when we started talking, I, I, 
I discussed our our discussion of seeing a lot of estate plans uh, not implemented, as you've been describing, that the, the clients have these beautiful documents. You mentioned that one from a big Boston firm. Um, why, why do you think it is that lawyers don't follow through with the implementation of their, these estate plans? Well, I think they're failing to see what estate planning is and not recognizing effectiveness and efficiency. It has to be effective in getting the assets to the right people or for the benefit of the right people, and it has to be efficient. And I think that some of the lawyers are not typically good with the small details. Conversely, CPAs are excellent with the small details. I think that sometimes the lawyers like to step back and say, well, I've drafted all these documents and that took my brilliance to do. Mm-hmm. However, I'm not going to spend the time to complete a beneficiary designation form. I will instruct you what you need to do and then you should go ahead and do it. So they never follow through after they send that li- letter that you mentioned earlier to the client saying you need to do steps A through C, D, E, F, whatever the steps might be. However, they never go back to the client and say, did you actually do these things? Mm -hmm. And in my experience, we have seen very many cases, particularly from large law firms, that they have sent such a letter and the clients haven't done anything. From the client's perspective, they walk out of the office after signing their documents. They're done in their minds. So when they get this letter three weeks later with copies of their documents, They don't even read the letter. Mm -hmm. And in the letter, it says you need to do all these different things. So if we take that out of the equation by saying, as part of the estate planning process, we're going to go through these implementation steps. We know that it gets done so that we know that the client's plan will be effective and efficient. So I've done all that I can to get them to the finish line. I think that's very important. We've also found in our practice that it, it often helps to work with financial planners so that if, uh, if the client already has a financial planner or has um, whether or not they're at, a, at, say, an investment house like Morgan Stanley or something like that, that if we bring them into the process, that'll help make sure everything gets done. Well, we work with a lot of different investment advisors. And as we implement the plan, going back to the John and Mary situation, it would be our office that would contact the Morgan Stanley advisor, for example, and say, hey, we're opening a new account in the name of John's trust as soon as he executes his trust. Please send us the application, and then we will also send you a letter of authorization to transfer the assets from John's name into John's trust name. So we regularly work behind the scenes with a number of different uh, financial advisors to do just that. So this, this is very good, and I, I guess the question for clients, unfortunately, is how do they know whether their attorney is, is really taking care of all this or because they, they, they don't even know about it. So it is a, I'm, uh, I guess, uh, um, not sure what I'm asking here exactly, but I think it is a difficult is- issue for clients of knowing that uh, all the work is completed as it needs to be. Well, I guess they could take a couple of steps. Number one would be read the letter from the lawyer (laughs) two weeks, three weeks after you executed the documents. Was there anything in there that you were advised to do that you haven't done? Mm -hmm. Or more simply, 
and perhaps their CPA can identify this issue, what's the title on their accounts? Mm -hmm. Are their securities accounts in the name of John's Trust and Mary's Trust, or are they still in joint names? How is the real estate tax bill titled? Is it in the name of a trust or is it an individual name? So I think a last thing that occurs to me is that it is good to review your plan every few years, maybe every five years or something like that. And often you learn that, um, I mean, these issues come up in that review because even if the lawyer might not have been so good at following up with it, hopefully the lawyer, when reviewing the plan, will say, oh, well, you, you haven't made those changes in ownership? Um, let's let's make that happen. One hopes that that is the case. But again, and I've seen this far too many times with the larger law firms, is that they focus solely on the documents. Mm-hmm. Are the documents valid? Have there been changes to the client circumstances that would require changes to the documents? So the lawyers tend to focus on the words. Mm-hmm. It's the accountants and the financial advisors that tend to focus on okay, who owns what here? So they take more of a balance sheet approach, whereas the lawyer just takes the 35,000-foot view. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, you need both. And unfortunately, at least with you, Joe, you got both. Well, I can be (laughs) critical of CPAs and attorneys, as I am one of each. (laughs) Right. Um, And we find that practicing in the space between CPAs and attorneys being able to practice on both fields is exceptionally helpful to clients. So they can come into us. Some clients come in as just estate planning clients, and they end up as tax clients, maybe trust clients, or they stay on one of the legs of the stool. So it's not necessary to come in and serve a client's needs in all three areas. But in the cases that we do, it's exceptionally efficient because one hand certainly knows what the other hand is doing, which is often not the case when your CPA and attorney are in two different practices. Joe and Briani, thank you very much uh, for another informative session. You're very welcome. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to the Ask Harry podcast. If you liked what you heard, please share it with your friends and colleagues. If you have questions about estate planning, you can find answers at askharry.info. And if you don't find your answer there, you can post a question and I will respond to it. You can also subscribe and listen to future episodes on iTunes. If you're interested in Harry's book, Get Your Ducks in a Row, The Baby Boomer's Guide to Estate Planning, please visit margolis.com. That's M-A-R-G-O-L-I-S dot com. Ask Harry is a production of pod617.com, the Boston Podcast Network.